Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, for years, we have humbly celebrated Women's History Month at QLS with a full month of fantastic female guests. This year, we say with pride that we have four multi-talented, award-winning ladies who kick down barriers. I'm talking Brittany Howard, Corinne Bailey Ray, and the incredible choreographer Fatima Robinson. And as well as... Listen to QLS on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buzz Knight here for the Taking a Walk podcast with a classic replay episode from a fan favorite. It was back in June of this year when I synced up virtually with Mark Rivera, the legendary sideman with Billy Joel. He's worked with countless others, including Ringo Starr, a great soul, a great storyteller. We're going to have Mark Rivera on this classic replay of Taking a Walk next. Well, Mark Rivera, it's so great to have you on the Taking a Walk podcast. Even though we're virtual, I feel like we're taking a walk somewhere in uh, your backyard. I wish we could be, telling the truth, uh, especially after last week. You couldn't breathe in my backyard, but we're, we're past that, thank goodness, right? I hope so. Oh, yeah. Well, congratulations on the great book, Side Man in Pursuit of the Next Gig. I love the book, and I love the themes of the book, uh, in particular, gratitude. Can you talk about what gratitude means to you? Uh, yeah, well... Um, the most important thing in our lifetime is that we realize how how blessed we are. Uh, I saw a wonderful, um, I think it was CBS Sunday morning with Michael J. Fox, and here's a man writhing with, with Parkinson's disease, and uh, Jane Pauley said something to the effect of, so what do, you, what do you have? I mean, how could you keep so positive? And he said, if we have something to look forward to, we have something to be grateful for. And I have so much to be grateful for because, first of all, I have the greatest, in my opinion, I have the greatest gig any saxophone player could expect to have. Uh, I'm also Ringo's musical director. I have all these wonderful 
friends in this business, and most importantly, I have my family. That's the main thing I'm grateful for. Gratitude to me is just stopping instead of getting on your knees and saying, oh, please give me, give me, or I need it, I need it. It's saying thank you. That's this moment right now. There's so much to say thank you for. Uh, and so many of us are hung up on getting the next um, big house, the next uh, Tesla, the next uh, boat. I'm just, I'm just happy to clamp to have my gigs and my family well around me and make new friends like yourself, Buzz. Well, you're very kind. Another theme in the book is longevity. <laughs> I think it's marvelous, the longevity in your career. What do you think the key to longevity is? Getting along. Just getting along. Uh, I, I always make my position, especially as a, a musical director, uh, make the analogy with a coach on a basketball team. I always say they have five guys on a basketball team. If I'm coaching five guys, um, I could go to one and say, hey, come on, man, Buzz, get get it together, shake you a little bit, where someone else needs to be called. Hey, Buzz, you know, you missed that layup, you know, we'll get it. In other words, everybody is an individual, and how you get along with each person is a separate entity. It's not like there's no cookie cutter that's going to fix uh, relationships. As far as longevity, I mean, uh, I just try to do what I do. Uh, I, I try to lift people up. Uh, my father, who's uh, basically mentioned so many times in the book, he'd always say, never look down on anyone unless you're helping them up. And I try to live by that because you, you know, everybody thinks that they're better than or they're trying to achieve to get as good as. Or, we're always comparing. Uh, I, I think longevity comes with your acceptance of your position. And uh, who, who was it? Um, Who's a great coach? Um well, to pay, well, you you'll say it's a, he's a great coach because he's your boy uh, from the, from the uh, Patriots, Bill Belichick. Belichick, do your job. Three words: do your job. And if you think about it, if I go into a gig or any situation, do your job. Just do what's expected of you, which usually means be courteous to people, uh, self-respect. I think that's what uh, is a great deal of it. People don't respect themselves. And they just come out with, you know, guns flailing. So many times people have uh, the answer to what they think is your question before they've actually listened, you know. And uh, longevity to me, do your job uh, and be, be conscientious of the people around you. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Don't pick anyone off if you can help it. <laughs> Another theme in the book that's quite obvious is you're a tremendous storyteller. Who did you learn your storytelling from? I, I that, that's a I don't know. All, all I know is I, I I've been told that I have an incredible memory. Uh, I remember people's names for some reason, and when people ask me how do you do that, I have no idea. But it, God forbid, if the day ever comes that I don't remember and I start to freak out, I, I remember instances. I remember uh, particular uh, environments. Uh, I, I attribute a lot of that to. I'm mildly dyslexic, okay? So I don't read very well. In fact, I just did my audio book, which was a, a real feat for me. I attribute a lot of my storytelling to my memory. I just, uh, if I hear something, if you remember the uh, the line in uh, when Paul Simon asked about this charts, I said, well, I think they're kind of lame. So I just came up with a line. I remember, I could play those horn parts today because I remember them. If I hear it, I remember it. So 
my recall is quite strong. So uh, I, I remember stuff that I did. In fact, friends of mine from Brooklyn, they said, hey, man, how do you remember that stuff? I said, I don't know. Just, you know, we were on 39th Street. We were in a bowling alley. We played. We did our gigs. I remember what, what guys wore, uh, the times, how they affected us. Uh, I, I, it's funny you ask that, Buzz. No one has ever asked me that, and I really don't, obviously don't have a real good answer, except that I seem to have pretty good recall. And uh, that makes for, uh, and, and for that matter, why let the truth get in the way of a great story, right? So, <laughs> Well, go back to that moment in the bowling alley, uh, okay. which I'm sure you could remember as if it was yesterday. <laughs> yes. Did you have tremendous butterflies at that moment? And do you still, to this day, have butterflies when you perform? Uh, at the time, I uh, was... Jeez, we were 13, it was 1966. No, uh, yeah, 1966, the Beatles were on 64, I was 13. And um, we were getting, you know, the, the drummer Daryl and his brother Joel and my cousin Vinny, who was like, you know, uh, unfortunately Vinny's passed away. But we would um, practice and practice and we'd get to the gig. And it was just a bunch, a bunch of knuckleheads, four, four teenage boys wanting to play and it was just a blessing was i nervous heck yeah um mildly terrified at the time because the first time we played it for you know up until that point all we're doing is playing i'm not just stepping stone like you know like a thousand times just for the four of us finally there's like maybe it might have been a dozen people but it might as well have been shea stadium for all i knew and uh so that was that was unnerving but to this day People ask two questions. They say, do you get nervous before you go on? I say, I don't think it's nerves as much as it's excitement. It's, it's adrenaline. And then other people ask the other question. Does it ever get to be like a, a matter of fact on the side of the stage of Madison Square Garden? I say, dude, if you're on the side of Madison Square Garden and you look around at 20,000 people and the buzz that's going on, if you don't get, if your heart doesn't get pumped up, check it because you're not, you're not a white, you're not conscious. It's a, uh, it's true that the, the adrenaline, the high of performing is tremendous, but I don't call it nerves anymore because we don't even rehearse with Billy at this point. In fact, I do a bunch of corporate dates and a bunch of gigs. I just did something for um, Breakfast with the Beatles yesterday. We got maybe 20 minutes to rehearse, barely, and it's five guys, but it's five guys who come in prepared. And it's like anything. Uh, again, any great organization is run by somebody who knows to delegate to great people. Otherwise, you're going to find the weakest link and that chain will break. So uh, it's uh, it's pretty interesting how, how you go. I just think it's a matter of how much I love what I do. And I'm going to make it the best it could possibly be. And you never take it for granted. Oh, no, no. Well, that's, again, uh, when you, you cannot do anything. I, I always say I have never phoned in a gig. In fact, uh, there was a club called Tracks in the City. And it was a great rhythm section. Uh, a dear friend who passed away, Yogi Horton, was the drummer. Bet Sussman, tremendous talent. Uh, Whitney Houston and uh, uh, she was Whitney's uh, musical director. Tremendous talent. Jimmy Rip, who's uh, Mick Jagger's MD. Um, we had this band and we'd back up all these different performers. And as it turns out, one night this guy comes up to me and says, hey, uh, I want to take your number someday. I'll be doing something. I say, yeah, sure. I didn't think about it. Four or five years later, 
I get a call from this guy, Jimmy Phelan, and he says, I want you to come to a recording session. I'm thinking, I hope it's not your wife because she was not that good. And it turns out because of that gig attracts and the guy hearing that, you know, again, it was a small club and it was uh, his wife or girlfriend at the time wasn't great, but we played really well because that's how we, that's how you do it. You don't phone it in. And because of that uh, tenacity or because of the pride that I take in my playing, the guy called me up and that's how I got Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer. I got to play on sledgehammer because of a gig that I did in this, I won't call it a dive bar, but it was, it sure as heck wasn't, wasn't uh, Madison square garden. So it's, uh, but that's again, the approach. It, it has to mean something. If it doesn't mean something to you, geez, do something else. You've talked about your, uh, your formative years that uh, really influenced you musically as being that, year 1967 in no particular, <laughs> right? Tell me about, you know, the vibe and the, the music that was bouncing around in your head in 67. Jeez. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples, and I think you'll, you'll understand. In 1967, the Beatles put out Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. Jimi Hendrix put out Are You Experienced and Axis Bold as Love. Cream put out... Fresh Cream and Israeli Gear. Um, the Rascals put out the Collections album. Uh, J- the Doors, Janis Joplin. Uh, it was all coming in, and it was at the time when DJs were allowed to play whatever they thought was cool, because a DJ, they, they were getting records all the time, and they'd play what they liked. It wasn't like, it wasn't the, the uh, and not, not to knock programming now, but geez, they they. It's kind of like, well, this is what you're going to play today. You have a, a list of songs and stick to the program, which is all well and good for, for the monetary side of it. But as far as getting people to experience music, it doesn't happen. And in 1967, look, there were so many things going on. Uh, I'll go back a few years before that, in 1964, when the Beatles came out to the States in, no, in February the preceding November, we lost Robert uh, John Def Kennedy. We were, it was such a it was there was all this turmoil and there was so much hate and there was so much young people were really disheartened. I mean, I remember my father practically in tears because of that. And, uh, and then soon after, in '67, we lost Robert Kennedy. We lost uh, Martin Luther King. So the music was a way that, that healed us. I was in 67, I was 14 years old. If I may say so, we were getting smoke a little bit of pot. We were finding, uh, engaging in sex and having all these things. It was a great time, and the music reflected that. Uh, a band called the Moby Grape, uh, unfortunately, put their record out the same day that Sgt. Pepper came out, and they had no chance, but they were still one of my favorite bands. Uh, I went to see the Moby Grape, but the guy, Skip Spence, had a bad experience with some drugs, so he had to cancel and I got to see Cream, their first show at Fillmore East. I got, and you saw the you saw the picture of the Jimi Hendrix ticket. That's for real. I still have that ticket in my in my uh, in my wallet. That's uh, th- there was so much going on, Buzz, that I was able to take a train from Manhattan, uh, from Brooklyn rather, into Manhattan. It might as well have been going like to Oz, because kid in Brooklyn, you know, you have your friends, you have you you know, you play your games, you're playing stickball. All of a sudden, you get on the F train, you end up in Second Avenue in the East Village. Like, wow! It's like, it's like. Remember, um, 
when when in that part in, in the Wizard of Oz when they all of a sudden she wakes up and it's in Technicolor. It's it was a whole different world. Sixty-seven, I will say to this day, uh it was the most fertile time in rock and roll music. I think in pop music in general. And we had um just tremendous influences. You had you had Richie Haven singing uh protest songs, you had folk songs, you had Joan Baez, you had Bob Dylan, 63, 64, who my mom turned me on to. Um at the same time, you had the other spectrum, at the other end of the spectrum, you had Psychedelia, you had uh, Santana, you had all these great uh, rhythm and blues, and Sly the Family Stone, of course, um, was one of my favorite. And you had, and I'm not even talking about all the great R&B, the black sounds out of Detroit, out of Memphis, out of Muscle Shoals. And again, Muscle Shoals, it's, I shouldn't say that because it wasn't the black, they were all white. But they played like in that swamp. I think you're familiar with that, right? So um, it, I, I, I could go on forever. But the short answer is it was an unbelievable time. All you have to do is get a list of the, of the Billboard Top 100 of 1967. And you say, wow. I, it was like a single week in 1967 eclipsed what went on, what would go on in a year. At this point, in my opinion, again, there's great songwriters still, but there's not the performers. I don't think that we had then. You had to be able. Some of these recordings were were, were recorded with one microphone in a room, capturing eight, ten musicians. And if the trouble was loud, they say, "When you get to measure sixty-three, turn your trumpet face away from. I'm sorry, face away from from the uh, microphone." You had to play with dynamics. You had to be able to have this cohesive group and. Um, Unfortunately, that's what I missed most of all, is playing with a group of four or five guys in a room and just, you know, getting into it. So so I, I'm sorry if that took a long time to explain, but... Uh... <laughs> it it was a, an amazing time for sure. Uh, I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, so okay. I would take the train as well and uh, and head to the, to the village. Um, and I was influenced... Um, greatly by the radio. That's why I got into radio, listening uh -huh. to WNEW-FM. I was fortunate to get to work there at, at uh, a point in my career as well. And um, you're right. It had tremendous influence on how it curated for fans in a much different way. Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, you mentioned WNEW. I just, I'm good friends with Dennis Elsa still and uh, Ken Dashow. I mean, I'll tell you... Uh, we named our dog Roscoe because I remember Roscoe's tag. I remember, I, I do love you so. And he was the coolest DJ. I had, had my headphones and uh, I, radio, radio just transported me. It was so tremendous to have. It was such a vital part of my life. I, I mean, and FM was happening. You know, you were getting album cuts. You weren't just getting like, uh, uh, you aren't just getting the top 40 uh, singles. It was exploding. It was great. So you, you know, you know. I have a uh, listener who of uh, the podcast who wanted to ask a question, um, a gentleman by the name of Tom who lives in the uh, Philadelphia area. Uh-huh. And uh, he wanted me to ask you, um, what do you think was the uh, early fascination that the Philadelphia market had before really many other places had it with the song Captain Jack. 
that I'd be Ed Shockey. Am I, do you remember Ed? Yes, I do. So I mean, you can't you can't even imagine how much of an how much of an impact one person could have. Here we are again. We're talking about what a DJ is allowed to do. Try to get somebody to play Captain Jack twelve times in a row, and if he didn't get fired, I don't know what the heck was going on. Ed Shockey took it took Billy on his shoulders. Uh, you know the thing about Philadelphia, because people ask me, like, you know, uh, other than you know Madison Square Garden, all these exotic places. What's your favorite city to play? I say Philadelphia. They say, why Philly? I say, Philly got soul. Philly's always had soul. Uh, Philadelphia, to me, two things. If they love you, they love you. But if they don't love you, they hate you. And it's like sports, like the Rangers and the Flyers or, or the uh, or any any rivalry with Philadelphia. You had this insane sense. But uh, Captain Jack almost couldn't fail because of Ed Shockey. You remember Ed, of course, right? I do, yes. I, Ed, I know uh, Ed was uh, an amazing trailblazer. And also, one thing I always loved about Ed was uh, Ed never saw a, uh, a free uh, hospitality platter backstage uh, that he could never have his way with. <laughs> See, <coughs> you're absolutely right. Ed enjoyed the, uh, the backstage uh the fair, old backstage fair. I'm also, do you remember Mark Goodman? Yes. Okay, Mark and I are very good friends. In fact, I just did a Q&A that um, Mark hosted. Because Mark's out of Philly, right? Or just outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm telling you, there's so much connection to this, um, I call it the Acela line. From Boston, I mean, I'll go up as high as Maine because I love Maine. But from Boston through Connecticut, through New York, through New Jersey, Philadelphia, Washington, that whole corridor right there, it's uh, it's something might it must be something in the water because it's how it's how we we connect to things. But um, yeah, I remember when Ed used to come backstage, he'd always have you know there'd be some mayonnaise. So, oh no, we always go clean, you know gotta get this. But <laughs> he was such a sweet sweet man, and he gave he, his passion was boundless. He just, he exuded like the enthusiasm and, and he'd, he'd be talking, yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, you made your point, Daddy, but it, but he was so into it. I can't remember his wife's name now, but she was always there with him, always. And uh, that, that that's the reason Captain Jack, I think that's the reason that Billy sustained because they were ready to, I think they were ready to pass. I think Columbia or CBS, whatever, they were, they were close to like, hey, we got nothing. And... Ed Shockey, I believe, uh, pretty much single-handedly turned Billy's career around. Well, yeah, Judy Shockey, that's right, was his Judy, wife. Judy, right. And I think, if I'm not <laughs> mistaken, too, there was also a pivotal moment with a Sigma Sound um, uh, session, live session, that WMMR would, would play MMR, with uh, Billy. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I wasn't in that band. I wasn't in the band at the time. But I know that I know what you're talking about, and it was that that time because I think that was like '78, maybe somewhere thereabout. Is that a, is that close to, to yeah, right? That sounds yeah, right. Yeah, I joined the band. Yeah, yeah. The, the main thing is, it's when you believe in something, and you you when you hear something and it connects with you. It's this innate thing. It's visceral because it's like I always say about people say, "What is it about the saxophone?" I said, "It's like." It's the closest thing to a human voice because it's in you. And when a song comes into your 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 
psyche or your into your being. People talk about like being Billy Joel fans and oh, Billy Joel's song is a three minute snapshot of my life. Well, I go back a lot further than that. I go to Beatles songs, Beatle Beatle lyric. I uh, remember, look, I want to hold your hand. The first, it won't be long. Yeah, the first time I heard it won't be long, I freaked out. My my aunt Iris bought me the record. It was just like a, a it was a game changer, and I could hear some Beatle lyric. I remember uh, being on on the train or on the bus rather with my friend John Grado. We cut out of school, and I had my father's uh, Toshiba transistor radio with the one earbud and listening in. And We Can Work It Out came on. I'm like, this is great. First of all, the song was tremendous because you had the perfect balance of Paul's optimism. Try to see it my way. We can work it out. Life is very short. There's no time for fussing. That's John. John said, this is how it is. Stop putzing around and get hip to it. But Paul, their balance, of the, the lyric was tremendous. So when something comes into you and makes that kind of, or has that kind of effect, it's tremendous. It's just tremendous because, I mean, there are moments in my life that I'll never forget. The first time in my in my abuela, my grandmother's uh, living room, listening to Meet the Beatles and then watching the Ed Sullivan show, that is a pivotal, pivotal moment in my life. Not unlike um, when I was accepted at the high school performing arts. These are things that you know changed my life. I was fourteen. Or yeah, fourteen. I was going to high school to, and there were uh, there was music, dance, and drama. There wasn't even a gymnasium in the school. It was you went there to to to, to hone your craft, and those things were just just tremendous, just tremendous to have that opportunity. Tell me how you got connected with John Lennon. Uh, I was in a band called Bump. It was it was actually called um, Community Apple. No, no, I'm sorry. It was before it was called Dog Soldier, after a John Lennon lyric. Um, my dear friend John Colbert was in a band. And it keeps cycling back and back and back. I met John Colbert, the keyboard player. Uh, we did a jam session in Brooklyn, <clears throat> a bunch of friends. But my cousin Vinny, which is how the book starts, my dear cousin Vinny, drove up to the Catskills and I had already been, you know, I was with Sam and Dave and I thought I made it and I fell. Oh no, I was with Eclipse. We were with this band and I, was, and I thought I was a rock star because we, we were managed by uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears' as manager. And then that went, went to crap. So finally I'm playing in this Latin band, playing bass in a Latin band. No place you want to be, especially after you thought you were going to be a rock star. And we go upstate, and I'm playing boom, 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 bored to tears, and freaking out, saying this, this is what my life has become. And I had a saxophone, uh, and I got to sit in with this little combo. And the night before, I met this trumpet player, Bob Livingood. Also, may he rest in peace. There's so many say that too often. Um, and he heard me play, and he was impressed with my sound. So he said, yeah, you got to come down to the record plant. Uh, I'm in a 10-piece band, and I think you would dig it. So I'm like, yeah, okay. I didn't think much of it, but I got to play a little bit, so it took me out of the doldrums of the boom, boom, boom. So I finally got that. Fast forward maybe a half a year, Bob Livingood calls my cousin Vinny, says, hey, tell Mark if he wants to come up to the record play. I'm like, yeah, cool. So we go there, and it was a tremendous band, 10-piece band. Uh, Vinny Apice, Carmine Apice's brother, played drums. Uh, it was just a powerhouse four four uh, horns 
two trumpets, trombone, and a saxophone. And it turns out they were going to replace the saxophone player. And the only one who had heard me to that to that point was Bob Livingood, the trumpet player, and of course John Colbert. So I get in the band. Time goes on, and little by little, I knew John Lennon was was recording in the studio because uh, the guys in the band had already done some hand claps, I think, on walls and bridges. And my a friend Jimmy Ivey uh, from Interscope Records and a couple of other small en endeavors in his life, he and I grew up in rival bands. So he said one day, he and Roy Sakala, who were the owners of the record plant, said, come inside, I'll do something. And I was literally cleaning the garbage. I was living at the record plant. And they invited me in little by little by little. And uh, finally, John was about to do this tribute to Sir Lou Grade. And the band backed him. We did a couple of tracks. Most of it was um, lip sync, but, but we did get to play a couple of things with him. But it was just... Again, it was another one of those Oz moments. I think I said in the book something to the effect, if I told you when you go through those doors, you're going to meet John Lennon. First we say, yes, yeah, sure, sure. But once you do, there's no turning back. And what would you say? How would you act? It's like one of those hamada, hamada, hamada moments that you just don't know. You try not to step on your tongue and you try to be cool, which is, um, again, part of uh, longevity. Just be cool. It's, I don't I don't know what else to say, but that's how we got to work with John. So tell me some um, horn players that really influenced you from the past, and any horn players of the present that influence you. Uh, the horn players of the past would have to be Junior Walker, King Curtis. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a real jazz guy. I mean, I, I listened to my my dad took me to see Sonny Rollins when I was like seven or eight, or maybe. Maybe 10, I'm sorry, I was about 10. He took me to see Coleman Hawkins' last performance. So those are tremendous sax players. And uh, he'd have, you know, Just Jazz with Ed Beach. That was a radio station he used to listen to. WRVR, Riverside Radio. You, you, okay, there you go. So, and, um, so my father used to tape this stuff really slowly. And it would last like the full, the full hour on each side of the, uh, the tape. So those are the guys. I would have to say, oh, Bobby Keys. Bobby Keys was a big influence because he was a soulful rock sax player. I'm not like a real chops guy. I'm not like a, uh, but the guys who really impressed me with with technique is, of course, Michael Brecker, David Sanborn, uh, Ronnie Cooper, uh, Barry sax player. But there's a gentleman uh, who's playing now with um, Dave Matthews, uh, Jeff Coffin, who used to play with um, Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. I don't know if you're hip to that. They, they, but he's just a tremendous player, and there are young players. I get. I just sat in. I just did a gig over last weekend, and this young kid, like thirty-five, half my age, which is crazy, uh, with a tremendous tone and a great attitude. This kid Steven Salcedo, just a wonderful young player, vibrant. And I'd hear him playing, and I turn around and say, "That's great stuff." And and he'd look over and he goes. Just trying to be like you, Mark. I'm just trying to be like and think. Wow, what this, this, this. So this, this wheel keeps turning. But uh, those are those are the guys. They, they, I'd have to say there'd be more R and B. The guy I can't remember the saxophone player who, who played on the Pink Panther. That sound on the Henry Mancini. In fact, the saxophone player I think got a, a piece of a royalty they gave him on that, which is tremendous to think about a guy whose sound was so so influential or so so much a part of the song. Mark, I think of you um, like an entrepreneur in how you sort of 
not only have your Billy Joel, you know, gig that you're so grateful for, but you have the other work, you know, with Ringo, you have the work you do on the corporate side, um, you know, to really sort of round out your work. Um, where did you get this entrepreneurial spirit? <laughs> In pursuit of the next gig, I guess. It's really, it's funny because people say now, how could you possibly be in pursuit of the next gig? So this has been going on for 50 years. From the time I was 13, it was my first gig. But from the time I was like 18, all the way through, which is 52 years, I've been gigging and I've been playing with different bands. And you, you go through different cycles. And it's it, you try not to just stay stagnant. Playing with different people, to me, is, is the greatest thing. It's the greatest communication. It's... Um, Entrepreneurially speak, if that's a word, uh, I was always trying to trying to create a situation for myself. I mean, yeah, there was obviously times when there was no work. Billy would take off for three years, and I had a hustle. I had a hustle. I had. I was selling life insurance. I was cutting trees down, and uh, I do look. I think the main thing is um, that I learned from my father to never be above any situation. If your family needs to be fed, if you if you have people that you have to take care of nothing should ever be below you you should be happy to have the opportunity to provide so that uh necessity being the mother of invention you you come out of that i needed to do certain things and i was not going to be let down i was not going to let them down it's pretty much how it went and i to this day i don't think about it as an entrepreneur but i guess of course you're right buzz it's uh it's what i do i go out and i hustle so let's play some uh, word association or words association with some Billy Joel songs, if, if it's okay with you. Of course. Scenes from an Italian restaurant. The word association there is like a bunch of guys. Uh, we used to play, myself, Liberty, Russell, and David Brown used to sit in back while Billy would start the beginning of piano uh, uh, of Italian restaurant. The scenes are like you know it's 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 like a uh, it's a it's a proper piece of music with like a, a a beginning an intro, a release a prelude and and then each one is a section. So these are different scenes. You could it's almost like you could be sitting in Brooklyn, outside and you're looking around. You're sitting having a bottle of wine or some pasta with some friends. Oh, that's going on. Oh, there goes Brendan Eddie. Oh, they, you know. Then twenty years later, these are the scenes that I think that Billy was was evoking. At least that's what I get out of it. Summer Highland Falls. That's uh, that's just him. He loves that area, Highland Falls. It's just he just uh, the song itself is beautiful because it is about manic depressants. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just high as a kite and low as low as the, the, the lowest doldrums you can think of. It's the and but most importantly, it's the ability to lift yourself out of those uh, out of that depression. Reasons covers this with our insanity. Uh, it's just it, he writes his his he's such a, a wordsmith. It's just it's just his battle with his probably his own. Uh, I won't say it's just depression, but we're all manic. We're all manic. We're all. Um, hey, this is great. It's great until it's not. And then this sucks. It sucks until it's not, and it changes. So we constantly go through changes, and we evolve. And I think the most important thing is how do you cope. How do you get by day to day? What do you do? What What are you going to do now? How are you going to remember the great Mike Tyson line? Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, so you, we're all going to get punched in the face. 
So Summer Island Falls, one of one of my favorite songs. One more here. Uh, this is the time. My favorite Billy Joel song. My sing singular favorite Billy Joel song, because it says these are the times to hold on to. So many people look back on their past or live for what might come in the future. This is the only time presence you, and your presence in the present moment is the most important thing. It might have been Michael J. Fox again that said this. You can change your future by your perception of your past. In other words, your attitude at this present moment, reflecting on the past and accepting that will change your attitude now, which in sense will change what you feel going forward. But this is the time holding you close is like holding the summer sun. It's like I told I, I was a, 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 a guest DJ on Sirius Radio. And I picked different songs, and that was, that was I said, this is my favorite song. I said, and if I wrote the line uh, about uh, this beach is so cold on winter afternoon, but holding you close is like holding the summer sun. I said, if I wrote that line, I would have been done as a songwriter. And that's just one of the thousands of lines that Billy wrote. Uh, it just means so much. It's such a beautiful song. This, it, this is the time. Not that in the past and that what you're thinking about going for this is the time to hold on to it's the constant he's always doing that he's got this amazing ability to really play with you with the words but uh the song is beautiful david brown played such a beautiful solo on that's like hendrix in fact the end of it is like the end of a Jimi hendrix song he'll say it you know that one and uh, easy money easy money is the end of axis bold as love so uh, Billy steals from the best, as he'll tell you. So. <laughs> Allow me to play word association right now, and uh, I'm going to say Mark Rivera, and my word would be amazing. Well, you're so very kind, Buzz. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly kind of you. Thank you for being on my podcast, and uh, thank you for all the joy you continue to uh, give me and, and others. Uh, I appreciate it. Buzz, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, and God willing, we'll keep moving forward. That's all we can do. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Taking a Walk podcast. Share this and other episodes with your friends and follow us so you never miss an episode. Taking a Walk is available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and Modern 
modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more and listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, for years, we have humbly celebrated Women's History Month at QLS with a full month of fantastic female guests. This year, we say with pride that we have four multi-talented, award-winning ladies who kick down barriers. I'm talking Brittany Howard, Corinne Bailey Ray, and the incredible choreographer Fatima Robinson. And as well as Lettucey. Listen to QLS on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.